Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. is will holden and today i am joined by mark wall how you doing buddy i'm good thank you william i just had a actual pint in a natural pub and lovely stuff so you got that you got that one pint buzz it's you gone to my head a bit to be honest did this stop at one? Reviews, uh, I, I did stop at one but that was that wow. was more than enough great restraint and um, we're also joined by andy melbourne how are you chieftain uh yeah all good thanks man got a uh Glass of wine to class it up tonight, so should be good. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Uh, this week are my choices, and as ever, we'll begin with the film. I picked Raya and the Last Dragon from this year, 2021. Not sure I've ever said the year like that before, but there it is. Uh, it's directed by apparently four people, Dan, Dan Ho- Don Hall. Carlos Lopez Estrada, Paul Briggs, and John Ripper. And it stars Kelly Marie Tran, Aquafina, Isaac Wang, Gemma Chan, Daniel Day Kim, Benedict Wong, Sandra Ode, Alan Tudyk, and many others. The synopsis is, in a realm known as Kumandra, a reimagined earth inhabited by an ancient civilization, a warrior named Raya is determined to find the last dragon. Let's catch you up. My name is Raya. Our lands have been at war for as long as we can remember. Our people never see eye to eye. My daughter, I believe our people can come together again, but someone has to take the first step. Now, in order to restore peace, we must find the last dragon. I wish to join this fellowship of butt kickery. Let's go. Anyone want to start us off? Oh, why'd you pick this one, William? Oh, yeah, that's normally what I that's what, normally how I divert attention from myself. Yeah, right. Yeah. Been learning from the best, mate. <laughs> Balls. Um, when this was first advertised, it was sort of sold to me as uh, similar to Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a show that I'm uh, I like very much and it's less talked about but equally good sister show, uh, The Legend of Korra. I'm also quite a fan of particularly Pixar animation. I think this is specifically Disney, if I'm not mistaken, and not not Pixar. But they're essentially the same company. And I think they have a pretty strong track record. And I kind of like sort of fancy and hero's journey type stories. So it ticked a lot of boxes for me. I was actually quite looking forward to watching this when it was first advertised. Cool. What was your take? What's your hot take? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. But it was ace. It's definitely going to lose a couple of points for me, like entirely on the basis that it is such a Disney film. 
that if you've seen any Disney film before, you can basically plot out the like, the film from start to finish. It's entirely predictable. But Most certainly. Like at the end of the day, like, did that did that make any difference to how much I enjoyed it? No, not really. Like I was invested from minute one. Like it, it's got that start that's it just reminded me of like the start of Hercules. Like telling, mm-hmm. giving, giving you the backstory with like a different animation style from the rest of the film. Film looked great. Like the the, I, I don't think a Disney film has looked better. Like the the world is just so like hyper realistic. So yeah, predictable and like <laughs> very similar to every other Disney film I like, but like not a massive problem for me. It's still super enjoyable. Oh, lovely stuff. Well, I was going to get into some specifics, but Marco, what's your what's your elevator pitch? It's not right, but t- no. tell us what you think. <laughs> My hot take is that the film was very much lukewarm. I think it's incredibly average. Uh, so, yeah, as has happened before, it seems like me and Andy will <laughs> be going at it a bit because I fundamentally disagree already with a couple of the things there. I've seen it twice. Now, I will say the uh, the second time was with Oscar, my nephew, uh, this last weekend, and he loved it. So, you know, thumbs up there. And I'm not, I don't hate it. Like, let, let's be clear, I, I don't think it's a bad film by any means. I, I just feel it's incredibly average. And it's interesting that it's four different directors. I didn't realise that. But, yeah, it does kind of feel like an amalgamation of a number of different fantasy tropes and whatnot. And I don't know that for me, it brings anything new to the table particularly, which it doesn't have to, to work. But yeah, I had problems beyond that, but it's okay. All right. Okay. Well, we're going to have a mixed view at least. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I, I think I agree with, I agree with you. There are some flaws about it and, I actually think in one or two occasions, the hyper-realism worked against it a little bit. I didn't, I didn't think the humor fully worked for me. Um, I think some of the kind of later characters that came in, it's called Boone, the kind of little boy that they pick up. Yeah. Like yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed him. Captain as kind Boone. Of comic relief. Yeah. I enjoyed Captain yep. Boone quite a lot, but some of the other bits, the comedy didn't always quite hit for me as it has done. I think as you're saying, Andy, it is quite formulaic. And uh, if, if I'm being absolutely like hyper analyst, a- analytical, that is a bit of a problem. And I think that's where Pixar kind of shine through. I think their films tend to be more original. But as you say, I was, I was invested. And particularly like by the end, I was fully caught with the kind of emotional drive of the film. Although I started off really positive, I don't disagree with some of the things it sounds like we're going to disagree about the look of the film but that that's fine i don't disagree with some of the things that you said though mark like it is massively formulaic it really follows tropes to the point where there's just no real jeopardy yeah if you've ever seen a disney film before then you've kind of already seen it i guess i just enjoy that like fantasy adventure disney film enough that it doesn't bother me that much. Like, I'm kind of just happy to watch more of it and enjoy the ride. Yeah, and I think that aspect of it is is fine. It's 
yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen the Avatar series, but I can imagine that being a, a connection, but certainly elements of uh, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, the, the classic fantasy, you know, genres, really. It's high all, fantasy, isn't it? Just... Yeah, I guess for me, I, I would say that I'm that arsehole who doesn't love Pixar all that much, to be honest, as a general rule. And they, I don't know. They just don't tend to land that well for me. There's a couple of exceptions, of course. Weirdly, I actually really like the last two couple of Disney ones, though. So I would couple? compare this. So I think uh, this same group, or I may be wrong, but I think they were involved with uh, Moana or Moana, uh, which for me is a far superior movie. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I really missed the songs, to be honest. They're sort of going for a more adult approach with Raya. And to me, it didn't work as well. If I'm going to watch a family film, I want it to just be a family film. Um, I missed the songs. I thought it lost a ton of the charm through not having them. The comedy stuff, as Will said, some of, it's, some of it works, but it's kind of tonally all over the place. And yeah, visually... You said it before, and and it is the case that I just am not that enamoured with the visuals at all. I really liked the different kind of art styles towards the start. I thought they were superb. Loved all that stuff. But in general, the world was just so bland and washed out. It had this kind of... Something like Moana is so colourful and vibrant and bright, and this was not for me. It's really washed out. Like It's remarkable that in a medium where you can do anything particularly on the second watch, the number of shots where it's just a character in the foreground with a dark background is remarkable, particularly in the second half of the film. There is just nothing in the frame. Like the whole of the background is just kind of dark, washed out, nothing going on. And I just think that's kind of lazy, to be honest. I remember it standing out to me. I'd, I'd argue that that's kind of, that's just a product of the world that it's set in. Like it's um, it's supposed to be a world like torn apart by this darkness and infighting between like different groups and like I, I don't think that's laziness. I would have thought that's a like purposeful choice. Like that's yeah, but I'm I'm talking. Sometimes there's literally nothing. It's just like a black background. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah I, I can't remember it standing out to me, but uh... no, me neither. I think okay, so some of the bits then that I did that did really work for me, like water looks incredible in this film. Like it could have just been filming real water. Yeah, and I think it's the one moment that it kind of works against the film is that the dragon, Sisu. There's a bit where the dragon is is Sisu is swimming in the water, and just by comparison, the water looks so much more realistic than Sisu that it, it just it broke my disbelief for a moment. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they've done mocap, but the faces were, I thought, very good. I thought the faces were kind of very emotive, even in a very you know, cartoony, classic animation style. But I thought you got a lot of expressions out of them, and the movement was quite like sort of smooth and, and quite natural. It didn't have that slightly... Uh, disturbing movement that like older CG has. I don't think 
particularly the water, and I think the smoke effects of the faceless bad guy, the 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 drone. Actually, oh yeah, that might be right. Actually, is that right? The drone. I thought they looked very cool. I think it's it helped that there was a kind of a secondary bad guy, which was the the people from Fang and their kind of greedy ways. Because if it was just a drone, having like a faceless, personalityless antagonist, I think would have been uh, bad. <laughs> I don't think you would have got any emotional weight from that. But I think having the Fang bit and I suppose their kind of um, redemption arc as well gets some extra, extra emotional meat. Yeah. Just touching on a couple of other things that both of you have said. The music, I I get that, but that it isn't an important part of Disney for me. Like, I know you like Disney music, Mark, so I think it, like, of course it was something that you would miss if it's not there. Uh, whereas I can very much take it or leave it, to be honest. The comedy, which both of you have said have sort of sometimes hit the mark and sometimes didn't. Um, yeah, I found it pretty funny throughout. Like, particularly, yeah, Boone's pretty good. I think Aquafina has... Um, Sisu's superb. Like I think she was my favorite of the voice actors, and Tuk Tuk as well. Like I think there was quite a lot of like comedy with him. He I enjoyed. was awesome. Yeah, he was great. Like from the first scene, in fact, from when he was little as well. But the first scene where you see him, like obviously a period of time has passed, and yeah. you see her like <laughs> talking to him, and then it suddenly like pulls back, and he's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like ten foot long. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, it it's great. It's a it's a good trope though. Throw in a kind of adorable animal companion. Yeah, sidekick, um, and it always works for me every time. Again, it's a good avatar connection because he's got a six legged flying bison called Opper. Yeah, and uh, they both ride around on there like cool pet guys. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll buy it every time. <laughs> but it. like the odd bit, like I remember when um when Cece first goes like into the water to um like propel the boat along and like she <laughs> she keeps like building up this whole like I'm really good at swimming. <laughs> That's my power. And then uh yeah, like jumps onto the boat and it suddenly like flies forward. I really laughed when Rhea just says to Boone, like, my friend really likes swimming. <laughs> But yeah, I thought the comedy was good throughout it. I don't have any sort of criticism for it. It takes a, I mean, the start of the film isn't particularly funny. Like it's sort of, you have that little bit that sets the world. And then obviously you have the, you know, meeting of the kingdoms and the dad turn into stone. So there isn't a lot of comedy in that, to be honest. Um, well, I think as ever, you need, a, you need a straight guy, don't you? And in this case, it's it's Raya. And yeah. un- until she meets kind of the rest of her party that, that brings some of that comic relief, I think, as you say, it's, it's a bit more dour. Yeah, but yeah, as soon as it kicked in, I don't know. The comedy really worked for me. I thought it was pretty funny throughout. I can't. I can't remember like specifically what sort of didn't work for me, but I just I do remember just some of it. I don't know, passing me by the comedy. Um, but as as some of the other characters come in, uh, I know I always love a good like gang building sequence as well of getting the troops together. Oh, the baby was weird. That was a con. Thing. Con baby and the three like con <laughs> con monkeys. Yeah. Yeah, the baby was an odd choice. I wasn't entirely sold on that. <laughs> it was just just a bit creepy. Yeah. As I was saying, I enjoyed the the, the redemption arc of Fang. 
like the the show's sort of ultimate antagonist. But again, those those kind of upbeat messages in Disney films always give me a bit of a nostalgic boost. That was like we can always be friends in the end. <laughs> yeah. They set that up really early as well. Like yeah. it was obviously the uh like I say, because you've seen Disney films before, I think Benja literally sets up like what you know is inevitably going to be the plot of the film. That like what is going to save them is coming together as a group and working together. And obviously it does eventually play out that way without him, but his like message is the thing that sort of carried like Raya through it. And like I say, it's it's massively predictable, but like same as you, I kind of it's a little nostalgic thing, isn't it? I I'd like the the sort of the heartwarming cheese of Disney. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Mark, like it's got it's got airs of Star Wars to it, but it also reminded me not just of like the, the basic tenements of Star Wars, but the experience of watching that as a kid and the 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 feeling of like the epic scale of it. And uh, as you say, your your nephew was was digging it out. How old's your nephew? Uh I think he's or just five, maybe four, so five that, range, basically. It's a it's a cool age to like introduce kids to stuff at and relive it vicariously, sort of. <laughs> yeah, um, for for sure. But yeah, I, I guess on that point though, it's it's not like, I mean, I suppose it's impossible to say really. But you know, if I go back and watch Star Wars: A New Hope for the first time, I think it's a way better film than than Raya. I don't, I just I don't know. It's it's just again I it's okay. I just I, I found large parts of it quite dull to be honest. Um like I say it never really sort of slowed down for me. I didn't um really once that like the the gang was together and they were just sort of hopping from place to place kind of adventuring. I was uh you know, I, I guess think... by the time it got into its last third of, mm. of where it did kind of settle down into one place and you know the the big sort of kind of crescendo at the end. I was already invested by that point and the sort of slowing of the pace didn't didn't bother me. Yeah, that's fair enough. I guess if you if you're not kind of sucked in by the the visuals, then you're relying on a story which is incredibly predictable and the characters, I don't know, they're they're okay. They're, there's I guess Aquafina's character was entertaining, but yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know what else to say really other than I just I just don't think it's uh, particularly good. <laughs> but I think that's the, the probably the, I think you're right about like if you don't buy into it, if you don't get that kind of suspension of disbelief, then I think the spell kind of is broken. And you're right to say as well that it is it's tropey and it's and it's formulaic. Uh, so I kind of I kind of get your viewpoint. I think it just ticked the tropes that I already sort of like i think it just kind of fell into a funnel i mean of, of my my shtick i'll offer a couple of unfair comparisons so take the sort of fight scenes the you know i guess there's two really you know the the big confrontational scenes within the movie they just play out with the again there's the staging of them is very boring i think for an animated film again in a medium where you can do anything they didn't do much like there's no interesting angles or shots or anything the backgrounds are very dull particularly in those confrontations like if you compare the final battle between the two of them to something like 
the lightsaber battle at the end of the empire strikes back mm-hmm. and like the staging of that the lighting the cinematography like just the what it all means you know like in comparison they're just kind of in an empty room with some pillars yeah and, and it's and, just you know it isn't comparable to kind of that iconic scene uh and it doesn't yeah. have to be, but I guess I'm just using it as a possibly bad example of why it doesn't match up to these other things which are similar, but for me do it a bit better. And the other obvious example in general is the majority of Ghibli, which I just think does kind of, you know, animated movies of this ilk in a way more interesting, imaginative way. Mm. Yeah, I can see that, I guess. And like I say, I think just the... I was over the hump of the story. I was fully on board. So while I can't I can't really specifically argue against your points, I guess it just thought it didn't didn't matter to me um at the time. There's there's definitely stuff within it that looks great. Te- on a technical level, as you say, like the the water and stuff, excellent. I think some of the locations were more interesting than others. I really like the kind of um is it the the land that Captain Boone comes from, the sort of yeah, harbor floating, town yeah. with like Chinese floating, lanterns floating market stuff. and yeah that that looked taste um and that was it, interesting and but other bits were just you know and I get it you, you are right it's a product of the of the story but it's a sort of you know barren desert barren land exactly destroyed and everything and I think as well like there's quite a good mix of because you've got all these like different cultures um that I mm-hmm. presume I don't like I'm not going to pretend to know enough about like Asian culture to to know for sure, but I presume that they are supposed to represent different styles of real Asian culture. And yeah, I thought there was real like variety in the imagery as well. Like you say, mm. like the from the floating markets and like the city in Fang and her homeland and the kind of barren wasteland and like it it sort of. I felt like there was a fair amount of like diversity across that as well. And mm. being Disney, I know that they got criticised beforehand for, I think most of the voice actors, or in fact all of the voice actors pretty much who are voicing Asian characters are Asian, but oh, not necessarily. And I think, I think they got some criticism for not representing the parts of Asia that they were supposed to be representing. Right. Um, but I think... I would imagine that their attention to detail on the like the look of different places and things that are kind of intrinsic to Asian culture being Disney is probably pretty spot on. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like in a perfect world, I'd have liked even more kind of backstory because they set up this idea that people have kind of learned to live with the drone. I haven't looked this up. I hope drone's right because I've said it about 40 times now. And you get those little bits about, as you say, there's a whole sort of town built on stilts on over water because the drone can't go on water. And uh, Fang is surrounded by kind of canals. And you get hints at it, in a, like I say, in, in a sort of perfect world. It's already a two-hour film, so I don't know where you jam it in. But just that little bit about how, how people live with the drone, I think, is quite interesting. I guess it's not the story it's trying to tell. It's just uh, I really like world-building. The drone idea kind of brings to mind the nothing in Never Ending Story for me, which is always a bonus. Yeah. Falcor yeah. is still cooler than uh, the dragon in this film, obviously. Cooler, so. cooler than Tuk Tuk. Well, 
look into <laughs> look into his big beautiful face and say, <laughs> "No, I couldn't go that far." He's 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 the man. It's a shame that Disney was such an anti-Semite, wasn't it? Because his films have a real nice sentiment to them. But <laughs> I think he might have been a really bad man. <laughs> They're two separate things, almost. I think like the the face of Disney through the films that they put out are very wholesome and usually send a really good message. It's like I say about the attention to detail that I presume is probably there, um, the accuracies about like Asian culture, because, you know, Disney always try and do that. Like they try and like accurately portray people. They have very wholesome stories about bringing people together and they're really good messages to send to kids. Now, as a company, plenty of issues, but like through their film output, zero issues. They're a great thing for children to watch with really good, like, moralistic stories for them to uh, learn from. I think it's sort of important that you separate the two. Yeah. But no, I think that's fair. Should we uh, wrap up with the scores then while we've still got... Still got a minute. Okay, so scores on the doors. Let's start with... Let's go for a shit sandwich. Andy, what's your score first? Nah, you go first. I haven't decided. Between two. Okay, fair enough. Well, I can still be one side of the shit sandwich. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight. I think it is. Uh, like I said, there are better films, I think, in this kind of category for me, in that sort of animated adventure film. But I enjoyed it very much. I think it did have a certain look to it, which is quite unique. And uh, I don't profess to know enough about the technology, but I thought some of it looked genuinely kind of visually stunning. And uh, yeah, a couple of points maybe for the the the, the formulaicness, but it did it really didn't bother me that much through the watch. So I'm giving it a, a strong eight. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I I think. Uh... For example, I would say for me, Moana would probably be an eight or a nine. I think that's a really good kids movie. I think even the Frozen movies are slightly better. It's I I'll give it a five. I think first time round I could have could have argued myself to a six, but you know I'm not really the market for it, and I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. But yeah, I I don't know I'd. There's a lot of good movies out there and this just, I don't, didn't get the things you got from it at all. In Rocky I just, think, I just, just think it's a very average film. Fair play. Andy, where have you settled? Well, I was between a seven and eight. It is a very average film in that it's a very average Disney film, I think. Like, it's, like I say, like it's follows so many tropes. And I was sort of wondering how far to knock it down for that. But just on enjoyment level, it sort of has to score really highly. So I'm going to go eight as well. Because, yeah, I just really enjoyed it start to finish. I was like super uh, engaged by it. From a like critical standpoint, there are things that I can criticise about it because it's not unique to the Disney canon. But I think that it is enjoyable enough that an eight is justified sweet all right with that said and done let's move on to my album choice uh which was emily's devolution um i assume it's like rather than d plus evolution you just say the say the thing it was by esperanza spaulding from 2016 
mentioned last week, Andy, that you had put a song from this specific album onto a playlist that we all shared some time ago. And it certainly explains why the first track was so familiar <laughs> when I uh, when I thought I'd come across it. But I'd come across Esperanza Spalding, I guess for the second time, through one of her much earlier, uh, much more jazz-focused albums. And I liked a lot of what was on there, but I think at times it also descended into too much jazz noodling for my particular taste. And I think in this album, I think it brings that all together into a slightly more pop or slightly more, yeah, I mean, pop sort of song structure, but yeah, built like, around... It's like a, sorry. a jazz-influenced pop rock album, isn't it? That's Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was trying to describe. Thank you. <laughs> and I think we have uh, discussed it before, Andy. Uh, maybe, maybe you and me as well, Mark. But I really like it when you can find something which is like pop plus. It has the... The hooks and, and the sort of the tenements of pop that I, I enjoy, but also pushes uh, at least some sort of like musical boundary. And uh, on a cover, the first kind of listen through, I thought this would do that. I thought this would be that, that type of album. But you've listened to it before, Andy. Yeah, so I'll, get, your... I'll get the boner contention out of the way early on because I'm 100%. I listened to this album for the first time, I think, a year ago pretty much exactly because it was in in fact maybe a touch more because it was in the first lockdown and I'm 100% sure I told you to listen to it uh, which obviously you didn't and then just to compound it today Will sent me a video that I told you to watch about two months ago yeah 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 no not, like, not denying it to me? I told you to watch this the truth is I've actively like stopped um I, I've been telling people to stop lending me things because I just I can't take a recommendation. <laughs> All right, well I'm still gonna make them, so uh Yeah, fine. but like I say post them in a chat in GIF form. If I can get the recommendation in like six <laughs> seconds or less, then I'm, <laughs> I'm on board. Um my my take very quickly was that I I really liked the album a year ago, and I haven't listened to it much since. Um, there's a couple of tracks that are on my big playlist that come up occasionally, but listening to it again reminded me how much I like it. And actually, there's a couple of other songs that maybe didn't jump out at me before that have jumped out a little more. And also, I listened to 12 Little Spells, which was her next album, I listened to that a little bit this week, and that's pretty good as well. Um, so yeah, a little, little bit of a fan. I think she's she's pretty cool. Cool beans. So Marco, where are you at on this? Oh, Matt's going to hate it. I can tell by his face. <laughs> no, he hates it. It's so funny. Everything you described there with the uh, you know the pop with twists, you know the musical interest. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, for whatever reason, the uh, the twists are the thing that put me off. I There's some stuff I like on it quite a bit. I'm not wholly negative on it, but I found it really tiring. <laughs> My little brain couldn't, couldn't keep up with, uh, with everything that was going on. And it's, it's got like a load of kind of maths elements to it, like math rock. It's not, it's not math rock, but you know, all the, 
weird time signatures and and whatnot. And yeah, I know, I, I know think what you mean. Yeah, definitely. When when those are used well, I love that kind of thing. But she's so sort of relentless with it that it really tired me out. And I think um, I ended up gravitating to the ones where they are a little bit simpler. I think there's a run of songs from uh, Judas, the third song, through to maybe Rest in Pleasure, Ebony and Ivory. So that is a fair stretch of the album, in fairness. I mean, we're talking four, five, six songs there. All of those I got something from. There's there's a couple of tracks in particular. You know, she's she's doing a thing which I struggle with, which is you described it as a kind of pop-infused jazz or whatever you said. It was better described than that. But I guess it's I would describe it as jazz fusion with like soul elements. And I'm not a big fan of jazz fusion as a general rule. I think uh, there's there's definite callbacks to Joni Mitchell's stuff with um, Jaco Pistorius. Sure. The way yeah. she plays yeah. bass reminds me of him as well. And, she, you know, she's an awesome bassist. Like, I mean, I've got all respect for her as a musician and, you know, every other musician on the album, and it's, it's well-produced. And they're talented people. She's She's definitely talented, but... I just found it a struggle a lot of the time. I think, you know, it's so all over the place. I mean, take a song like Funk the Fear, is it called? The second to last yeah. track, which has that kind of mathsy guitar riff throughout. And to me, the vocal melody is just all over the place and clearly by design, but it, it just doesn't seem to fit at all. And sometimes I think that's a good thing. I've, I've said in the past, like that can be really effective that on this record for me, it just it just sort of sounded like warbling over the top of something with no real direction there are exceptions as i say i think the the chorus to uh earth to heaven really like that i think that's a great song yeah, that's one great. of my favorites on the record there was one thing i wanted to ask which you've now answered which was i realized there's two versions of this album on spotify and it doesn't really matter i discovered it today when I clicked on one and realized it didn't have a song that I really liked on it. So I want it now, the like Charlie the Chocolate Factory cover. Was that the last yeah. song on the album? There's another version that has a different version of the second track, Unconditional Love. It also has a track called Change Us on it. And I really like Change Us. And it's it's a relatively straightforward track as well compared to a lot of the others. Anyway, I'll just... <laughs> well, by no, that I'm going to be talking about a song that you uh, haven't listened to. Haven't heard, yeah. <laughs> it, by, by coincidence, um, at least we appear to have all listened to the one that I thought I'd picked. So that's the right good. album. Yeah. <laughs> one of the right two albums. As you mentioned there, Mark, I think she is a superb bassist. And I think even within the, the I guess, genre of that jazz fusion pop whatever we're going to call it i still think there's quite a bit of variety in the songs but i also think from a slightly self-indulgent point of view i think there's loads of variety in the bass as well like there are songs like judas really like staccato picked bass and then later on i think it's nobles nobles or mate yeah nobles nobles i think it's all fretless um i think traditionally she's a an upright bassist or at least was on on the the earlier albums and there's some of that in there as well but i think from a bit of a 
a slight kind of base nerd perspective. I was super into all, all of the base stuff going on in this. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's understandable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think she's a great singer as well. Um, just to pick, on some, pick up on something that you said, Mark, I sort of agree with you. I really like the first couple of tracks as well, actually. So for me, one to six, like Rest in Pleasure is track six. I think they're all great. Like, I think that's a superb run. And then I really like Funk the Fear, although I do get what you mean because it it just hits on this groove and the vocals are just out of step with it. Like, it's a, it's a push. And it really, like, skirts that line of whether it works or not. For, for me, it works. Um, mm. I really like the cover of I Want It Now, and I like the tr- really like the track that you haven't heard, which is Change Us. <laughs> So, but I actually think it dips a little bit in the middle. Like there's like four tracks between those. I think the start and the end is really strong. Um, and yeah, a few of the ones in the middle just didn't, just don't do much for me. Like there's nothing specifically wrong with them. I think I'd broadly agree. I mean, I like her. No- I like her voice enough, and I like her bass playing enough that they they never dipped into like bad for me. But I think I'd agree that sort of ebony and ivory through to elevate or operate uh which are seven eight nine and ten respectively i think you're right i think that's a little bit of a dip and particularly number nine farewell dolly i think was the one track that sort of stood out as my least favorite and i say that from a point of it's a good song but it's it seems the least interesting on a very interesting album yeah yeah i'd kind of agree with that also what you were saying mark about like finding it difficult by its kind of math rock like elements and stuff. It's weird, isn't it? Because I don't think there's there's not many songs where there's a huge amount going on, but it's incredibly like dense. So like everything. So it's not that there's like 50 different elements going on all at once. There'll be like four elements going on at once, but they're doing quite Mm -hmm. opposing things a lot of the time. So it does make it. I don't think it's an album that. Like, you can like it the first time, but I do think it is the sort of album that, like, grows on you a little bit because your ear just can't yeah. pick up on all of those, like, opposing things going against each other at once. I think that's why I've enjoyed it coming back to it more because I mm-hmm. still had a little bit of familiarity with it, but in just kind of remembering, like, main vocal lines and things like that, like, my ear was drawn to some of the other bits that kind of get lost in the denseness of it yeah i've got to say as well that like even though i've listened to it quite a lot in this last week i can't always recall the songs immediately like i I, you know listening to the first couple of seconds i think okay i know that one but i i can't say i've tied their like names and i had it on repeat as well so it just went round and round and round so i I, uh, kind of i know what the first track was it was the one i was familiar with beforehand so I knew when the album was starting, but yeah, they, they they weren't, it's not that they're not catchy, but they're not so immediately hooky that I really remember each and every song just there's by just, looking at their titles. challenging things about them. Like there's, although there are pop elements to the record, it isn't a pop record. So it isn't something that you can listen to once. No, it's absolutely not. It instantly. And that's not a bad. Well, I'd, I'd argue that's a good thing. Right? It's, it's something that comes up, isn't it, in a few of these albums we've discussed about the 
songs don't come to mind you can't pick anything out i think there's definitely been three or four where that's been a kind of complaint and i think it's interesting because to be honest it can lead to stuff having incredible longevity and repeat value Mm. because if you're still getting something out of it on each listen and you're not remembering what's coming but then when it comes you enjoy it that's a treat that's a great thing however if it's just all a bit kind of wishy-washy and it never truly grabs you then obviously it just means that it's it's not memorable in any way i can see that i would say compared to some of our last criticisms i think this is this is not entirely memorable because of, as you say, it's it's challenge, it's kind of its complexity. As where I think some of the others were unmemorable because they were just un, un, sort of uninteresting. I think something like this, I don't think is a perfect album, but like I get more from it every time I listen to it. But actually, a lot of the chorus melodies and stuff are quite hooky and memorable. It's just that they're hidden amongst like quite a, like I say, like a dense melodically populated thing mm. like there's like you say well all the bass lines are, are quite uh, just great they're quite melodic like you could listen yeah. to them on their own they are melodies like you, you're not you're never listening to a bass playing root notes and no i and, think and a lot of things are like that and it, it it's like i say this isn't the perfect example of like the best album i've ever heard but it does tick all of those boxes for me mm. But I think that was like the connection Mark was saying about Jaco Pistorius and that like the prominence of the bass as an instrument in this being sort of as as melodic as it is rhythmic is yeah it's fairly unusual sort of outside of jazz and funk. But I think it's awesome. But I agree with you. I think there are enough like hooks and really nice melodies in there that I always come away with with I come away with a bit of a song in my head like one. It'll be like a riff or the the chorus or I, re- I I like I say I don't immediately recall it all until I kind of listen to the first three or four seconds and it all comes back. But I guess as Mark was saying, it keeps it keeps it fresh for me. <laughs> like I'm not not always confident what's coming because um, it's not on the sort of tip of my brain tongue. Yeah, and I I do agree with that, and I do think it's a grower. I I just her. Vocal melodies are a bit more scattershot for me. I don't, there's some I like and there's there's some I don't. And I, I think I've got similar issues, as I mentioned, with like that kind of Joni Mitchell stuff. I think it's it's very kind of intentionally wayward vocal lines. Like they just sort of go all over the place. They jump around loads. There's no real, I don't know, like the phrasing of them is very loose and, and jazzy and I don't really like that, to be honest. I yeah, see, I think that that is just something that I like. Like, I really like Joni Mitchell. I think like that's quite a good comparison as well, because although the backdrop is completely different, the vocal melodies are very Joni Mitchell or they are. Um, yeah. Paul Simon or like somebody who it's not even like repetition. Like there is some repetition there, but the the vocal melodies are. It's treating it more like a like a jazz lead instrument, isn't it? Like how a sort of trumpet or sax part might be written. Yeah, but I just think all that stuff is super cool. Like the people that I'm comparing it to are people that I really like for that reason. You know, mm. and I I might think it's cool if it didn't have all the rhythmic displacement happening as well. I think if there were more consistent grooves behind it, I'd 
be more comfortable with the vocals going all over the place but being as though you've already got the struggle of like well there's no constant rhythm here I'm not saying I just want it to be 4-4 or anything like that because you know I don't like just straight music in general but to me it just the rhythmic displacement is challenging in order to like kind of go with it and then the vocals on top of that just being all over the place I just as I say it's just a bit tiring I think I'd like think- it in fits of two free songs and I, I get quite a lot out of them there's definitely positives but just as a whole album listen it's just a bit much for me man I just I, I you know I think maybe it's I'm just getting say, too old for this shit I don't know <laughs> I don't know I, th- I think it's fair to say like it might be more than two or three songs but I think there is there are plenty of songs that, that don't have much of that in I think Unconditional Love don't like that song yeah I don't I don't love that song actually like out, I don't mind it but out of the first six um, is my least favourite particularly the melody line I think is very a very much like pop melody line and it's weird because the alternate version, which is on the version of the album that I listened to, the song itself is much more in keeping with the rest of the like early part of this album. Mm-hmm. Um, like the melody like barely fits with it. And I'm not if sure it... whether I like it more or less, to be honest. Like, I've only listened <laughs> to it a couple of times. I, I quite like the the backing vocal stuff she does. I actually found myself more drawn to them as like a kind of lead component because they do move with the chords. They like stick to that, which I like. And then the, the main, I found them, find them more memorable than the main vocals some of the times. Yeah, I just, I, it's, it's just one of those, isn't it? It's just another one where there's very few moments in it where I think her vocal melody sort of leads to a place which I find particularly satisfying. But they're fine but they're sort of so jumpy and all over the place. There's never, very rarely at least, moments where it suddenly lands on a note that hits a certain chord along with it and it all comes together in that perfect unison of, you know, music that I enjoy. I I don't know. I'm not a big kind of soul guy either, uh, to be honest. I don't know. It's We keep going around in circles, or at least I do, of how to describe what it is. But, yeah, yeah, it... No, I think like the things that we're talking about, your criticisms of it are just things that I actually like about it. I think about like a song like like Rest in Pleasure, where the I quite like that one. Yeah, I think I think Good Lava is the the track for people to listen to when I put it on the playlist. If we're doing favorite tracks though, uh that one, Rest in Pleasure, and the track that you haven't heard is <laughs> My favorite, but I think like actually the vocals almost disappear by the chorus, and then there's just the line "rest in pleasure," which actually falls kind of weirdly because it sort of falls mid bar, um, and then like crosses over into the the repeat of the four bar phrase. But the chorus actually pulls together quite neatly musically. Like a lot of the kind of the like counter elements that are running through the verses do kind of pull together. There isn't a lot of, you know, counter melody and dissonance and stuff through the chorus. Like musically, it pulls together neater. So yeah, I don't think it always does it in the vocals, but I do think there are those like harmonious moments where the kind of slight chaos pulls together. Yeah, yeah. That, that that is a good song. 
yeah that as i say that that one of songs i did quite enjoy i just think it's sort of I, I don't even like good lava to be honest it's um it's just too much for me like, oh, i, I love that really like i can only describe it as just like a greasy groove at the beginning and whaley vocals yeah yeah, yeah i really uh really drawn in by that it works for me on, on a lot of levels what's have you got a favorite song marco uh, yeah, I mentioned it before, uh, but After Heaven. Sure. That's a good track as well. Yeah, but I think all I would say is, that I guess, even the tracks which I like, and there's probably five or six which I like on the album, and I don't think any of them would rate higher than sort of a seven out of ten for me. No, some of these, I say, they're probably the same kind of tracks. I just... I see them in a in a better light than that. Uh, I enjoyed them quite a bit more. I think I, I really like Good Lava, but I also like Judas quite a lot as well. That one stood out to me just as another track because I agree, Earth to Heaven, Rest in Pleasure, great great tracks, but Judas uh, and it hasn't had a lot of mention, I guess. But I, I know you brought it up earlier, Mark. But yeah, I think that's a very cool track and starts off more melodic and more. I guess straightforward as a track, and it's it's sort of in its in its kind of chorus or maybe pre-chorus that it gets its its mentalness. But yeah, I like that track quite a bit. What was our opinions on the uh, "I Want It Now" the Charlie and the Chocolate oh, Factory cover? I, I really was, like it. I thought that was cool. As I like that it's that it's chaos, but it ends on this huge like fanfare note that. As a as a final song to an album, felt very like theatrical, and I enjoyed that a lot. I only listened to that one a couple of times because I, I sort of was always flagging towards yeah, the, not getting that far record. in. And I, I listened to the original, and to be completely blunt, I wasn't that big on the original either. So um, no, neither am yeah, I. I don't, not not too bothered by that one. Fair enough. All right, so let's have a look at the scores on the doors. Uh, who wants to take it away first? I'll go this time. I'm going to go with a six. And I'm doing the the opposite to what I usually do, where I think I'm more on a five, to be honest. The reason I'm giving it a six is because, actually, I do think I'll revisit it occasionally. And I can see it growing on me. And, yeah, it is talented musicians, really, it just doesn't completely land for me, but yeah, it's it's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Six. Six. Let's just yeah. I'm gonna give it an eight. Stick with the eight club. It could have scored higher. Like I think the the run from seven to ten for me lets it down a little bit. Well, I'm looking at a 13 track album and thinking six, seven, eight. I think nine of them are great and four of them are fine. And yeah, nine great songs in an album is a is a high scorer. So so yeah, eight for me. I mean, I think I'm in a pretty similar boat to you there, Andy. But because I think of her exceptional basing, I'm going to be extra generous. I'm going to give it a nine. I actually really enjoyed this album. And there was a there was a period when I first like I had to listen to it once, decided to pick it, and then my first kind of listen to it back again. I was a bit more Camp Mark and thinking like, this is this is a bit much. Like, I'm not sure this is. And at some point it just clicked for me. And once it did, I really enjoyed listening to this album and sort of actively put it on beyond just requiring it for the podcast. 
All right. Well, with the album done, let's get on to the top five lists. Uh, my choice of top five list was top five film with terrible sequels expanded to, I would accept, multiple films if they are outweighed by bad sequels. I guess all prequels. But anyway, the point is that within a franchise of multiple movies, there's one you really like or, or, or a couple you really like and the rest are rubbish. I felt like I explained it much better last time out. Like I feel I've really stumbled over that. <laughs> Anywho, let's get to it. Andy, do you want to kick us off, bud? Yeah, look, it's not a terrible list idea. It's a terrible list idea for the way that I watch films. Because, like, I'm really not a fanboy about stuff. I, I sort of, you know, the new Die Hard came out. I, I didn't rush to go and watch it straight away. I saw that it got terrible reviews, and so I've not watched it. I also don't get into, like, franchises very often because... I sort of have a bit of a thing about preferring people to make <laughs> original ideas. And so I've seen very, very few of the Marvel films. Or So I've done my list and it is it includes two films that I've not seen for about 15 years and I barely remember. And um, a couple of films that, honestly, I kind of don't mind. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> my, list is, my list is awful. I flick through the like the worst sequels of all time mm -hmm. i bit of googling just haven't seen any of them any of them across the board okay anyway. well what, what's your what's your number five on your exciting list um so number five is anchorman 2 i actually don't think it's terrible like i, I think it just like it's already trodden ground so it does exactly the same jokes as the first one and you've already seen them because the first one was so popular, it tries to cram in a load of cameo roles and stuff that is just not adding anything. I mean, to be honest, the entire film is not adding anything, essentially, <laughs> to the franchise. And yeah, it, it doesn't mean it's bad. It's fine. It's just unnecessary. At that point, like, you haven't got a new story to tell about the characters. I know it's a throwaway comedy, but still, like... You still got to have some pretense of plot and stuff. And uh, yeah, no, agreed. A, a thoroughly, thoroughly awful sequel. So it gets in at number five because it's one of the few bad sequels I've seen. Super. Mark, do you want to go next? Sure. My number five is American Psycho. So I must um, say, I've, I've not seen American Psycho two, but I do understand that it's very poor. I feel like it was a video store rental back in the day for me. All oh, for I sure. remember it is is that it had William Shatner in. Apparently it had Mila Kunis and I've just looked. Um, don't remember that. But yeah, it just has absolutely nothing that makes the original so like compelling and interesting. It just completely misses the point mm. utterly. It's just dreadful. I mean, it's, it's I, I don't see any defenders of it. It's just... A horrific, straight-to-video, pointless piece of crap. I think so. missing the point is is uh, is a huge hallmark of the bad sequel. Like a film that had a had a something to say, and the follow-up just utterly utterly misses it. Uh, but good choice, good choice, man. Um, my number five is Blues Brothers. Talking of uh, soul music. I think this is probably the, the progenitor of how I got into a lot of the music was the original Blues Brothers. 
And Blues, Blues Brothers 2000, well, not in and of itself like a completely meritless film. I think once John Belushi had died and John Goodman, who I'm a, a big fan of generally, just the magic wasn't wasn't there. And I think the period that it was made in, you know, a lot of those um, kind of original acts were still around and like performing in the original, like James Brown and uh, Ray Charles. And I just, I don't think they had the kind of um, the people to bring back for the sequel. And I just think it's lackluster compared to the excellent original. Not seen it, obviously. It's essentially the same story as well. Anywho, Andy, you're number four, bud. Uh, yeah, I'm actually going to swap in my my six pick. I'm going to go with Battle Royale 2. Oh, nice. Which is just, it's the absolute classic example of a bad sequel where the storyline is so similar that it's pointless making the film. Like, they add in an extra element of the kids are there to... <laughs> Which sounds ludicrous when I say it. The kids are there to take down a terrorist organization. Um, but that is the plot. Um, but aside from that, like there is no difference from the original plot. Cool. Good choice. Uh Marco, you're number four, bud. It's probably the only one that is slightly debatable, maybe. Um, Silence of the Lambs. Okay. In particular relation to Hannibal. The uh Ridley Scott film, which I don't like very much, to be honest. No, I, um, I would absolutely agree. I think Hannibal is not very good. Where do you I mean, fall on Red Red Dragon? I actually don't mind Red Dragon. I don't yeah, think it's uh, great, but it's okay. It, like it's it's better than Hannibal. You know, I quite like Red Dragon. Not as well, much. See, as I, of the I, Lambs. Put them, I put them very like comparatively. Like Silence of the Lambs is great, and mm-hmm. Red Dragon um, and Hannibal are both. All right, like they're nowhere near as good as Silence of the Lambs, but I don't mind either. Of them. Like, yeah, fair enough. I guess the central point is they're just nowhere near as good as Silence of the Lambs. Well, that's I mean, true. Um, yeah. Not a patch, neither of them. But I actively found Hannibal like quite quite boring. Yeah, it's uh, just a, a bit of an ugly film all round. I, I don't. Still can't really think of a better word. Engaging, but yeah, I mean, in comparison, as you say, to their original and they like. The masterpiece, I think, that is Silence of the Lambs. Interesting choice, man, yeah. Um, My number four, so as you said at the beginning, Andy, you're not much of a fanboy. Well, I am, and I I love me a franchise. Um, So my number four pick is Thor Ragnarok, which I think uh, is a film absolutely full of charm. Uh, It's a fun watch. I think it's pretty funny in parts. Um, It ticks a lot of my kind of comic boxes. But I think the previous two films to it are both, particularly The Dark World, are just pretty bad, are just pretty bad films. Um, I think it really peaks at Ragnarok. I was wondering where you were going with that. I was like, Ragnarok's great. (laughs) I'm thinking sequels, you've gone the prequel route. Yeah, I've tried to take twisted, it within. You twisted it. I twisted it, but within the franchise, I think Ragnarok is genuinely like a really good film outside of the Marvel canon, which I must admit I probably give more of a pass to than they deserve in some cases. But the first Thor, I think at best, is is 
okay. And I think the dark world is actively like poor. But I think Ragnarok is is great and really stands out as a. I think it's immeasurably better than the other two. Yeah, uh, I think it's one of the the best of the Marvel films overall. I, I would agree completely. But uh, it, it's one of the few I think that, like I think Iron Man has quite a dip but the best of iron man is nowhere near as good as the best of thor in terms of their mm-hmm. like respective films so i would i would agree with that yeah that's why i got the got the pick uh what's your number three andy i'm gonna get it in early i originally had it at number one but i realized i actually don't hate it which is indiana jones i mean the bad one is kingdom of the crystal skulls sure I actually think it's, I think I might have seen it in the cinema, and I think it's not as bad a film as a lot of people said. Um, it is as bad a film as everyone said. Well, I think you're simultaneously I, right and wrong. You're right to add it to the list. You're wrong that it's not as bad. <laughs> so I'm, it, it was with a caveat that I've not got to yet. I think it is a, I think it does a lot of the things that I've said in other <laughs> other things on my list um, mm-hmm. where it is completely unnecessary because it just retrods ground that has already been covered um, like it just does the same things but I don't think it is objectively bad it then introduces aliens and I'm completely out like it, it is a franchise ruiner as soon as that happened for me <laughs> like it's, it's the film instantly lost like it was at best a six out of ten probably lower and it instantly lost about three points based on that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think normally throwing an aliens into something, it gets the thumbs up from me, but it's just so tonally... Uh, it doesn't fit with the world. Not not at all. And, I mean, the earlier films had various, like, mysticisms and supernatural elements, and that seemed to feed into the world well because it was about perhaps through a fairly uh, empirical, misguided viewpoint, but was was searching the kind of unknown parts of the world. I just want to bounce off what you were saying there, though, because that, that's my number one, like, without a question. And I don't entirely agree that it's the alien aspect which actually ruins it. I just think it had already managed it long by then with terrible characterization, terrible writing, uh, terrible direction, horrific CGI grim cinematography looks nothing like the other films it feels nothing like the other films um i think the only single element of it even john williams's score is underwhelming the only element of it that retains any value whatsoever is harrison ford and he is you know it's his fourth best performance as indiana jones um yeah i just think it's a perfect trilogy it ends unbelievably well riding off into the sunset in free. I mean, that that is closure done. Anywho, Marco, what's your number three, buddy? Highlander. It's a good choice. Had it on my long list. I mean, is Highlander itself the greatest film of all time? Well, it's pretty up there, isn't it? Let's, let's not mess around. It's, it. it's got Connery, so... It does have Connery. It's also got... Um, oh, my God. Why is the name gone? Clancy Brown. Oh, yeah. 
Clancy um, Brown is one of those TV actors that for a long time I didn't know his name. He was just yeah. like, oh, it's that, it's that guy. It's that guy <laughs> exactly. with the voice. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of time for Highlander. It's it's stupid, but it's super fun. And um, yeah, the sequel isn't. It's still stupid, but it's it's not fun. Yeah, no, I completely... And it still has Connery. And yeah, even that. Even that doesn't... Can't rectify it. I mean, the mere picture of Sean Connery in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is the high point of that film. But he couldn't he couldn't do it for Highlander. No. <laughs> My uh when I was looking through these and uh, and like Andy going through some uh, some lists, my favorite review of Highlander was simply there should have only been one. <laughs> I thought that was very yeah, good. <laughs> that that is very good and very accurate. Okay, cool beans. Uh my number three is Meet the Parents. I'm not a huge Ben Stiller fan at the best of times. And I'm not putting this forward as like a particularly outstanding film, but I think the sequels take such an incredible nosedive after the first one. Um, It has elements of what you were saying earlier, uh, Andy, I think about like just reusing the same jokes again with very slightly altered punchlines. It was more kind of off the wall and goofy than the, the previous one. And as I say, I'm not not sort of flying the flag for Meet the Parents, but the sequels are so increasingly atrocious. They get they get worse as they go on that it uh, I actually think it really paints Meet the Parents in a much better light by comparison. I, I, I have a bit. I couldn't I couldn't put it in the list just because I don't like the first one that much. I think that's fair enough, and I'm certainly not going to spend very much time trying to defend it. But now I got a little bit of a soft spot for Meet the Parents, and uh, as I say, the sequels were so uh, so awful. I've got another another one that I could have sort of slipped into this in a very similar vein, but somebody else might have it yet, so I'll uh, I'll leave it there. That's my number three. Uh, you're number two, buddy. Uh, yeah, so now we're getting into really sketchy memory time because I think two and one, two and one, I've put in because the sequels are like they're bumped up my list because the sequels are particularly awful. But I've seen both of them once and years ago. Anyway, number two is The Mask and the sequel, Son of the Mask. I don't know if either of you have seen it. I I most certainly have. It's just that the drop-off is so huge. Like, the first one is, again, like, I I don't know how well it would hold up, but it was a, uh, yeah, it was a film that I liked quite a bit when I was young. And... um, you realise how much of it is carried by Jim Carrey. Like, almost with anyone else, it maybe wouldn't have worked. And with a worse script, and, I mean, I don't want to be... Well, he's not going to listen. Considerably worse actors. (laughs) Um, It just... I just remember it being absolutely atrocious. I think you're right about the original as well. Like it might, it might be nostalgia, but I can I can recall almost every scene of that film. Like I did watch it a lot as a as a wee boy, um, and yeah, I agree as well. Like the the drop off is considerable. But I, maybe I won't ever watch The Mask again and just hold it as a special place in my heart. My uh, my favorite thing about The Mask is a. Uh... The scene where he's like in the prison cell and he like lines the toilet with like 
toilet paper. Yeah. I mean, great life lesson there. Um, the best part's when the dog gets the mask (laughs) that's the best part that is pretty good you know what actually the more we talk about it I might go re-watch the mask he used to really like the bit where he's like blowing smoke rings and blew like a heart and then an arrow through it and then the next minute like a really detailed like ship all made of smoke (laughs) it's good stuff (laughs) yeah I remember remember huge amounts about that film uh, Marco, what's your number two, buddy? Johnny Darko. Um, yeah. Again, sorry, it had a sequel, but obviously never watched it. Yeah, and I don't think many people did, and I don't know how connected it is to the original. Certainly, I don't think uh, the director slash writer um, had anything to do with it whatsoever. So, yeah, it was just a, a cash grab completely for idiots like me to be walking around in Blockbuster or whatever video store it was at the time and think, oh, there's a sequel to Tony Darko, <laughs> awesome. And uh, it's very much not awesome. It's a tragically bad film. Snap it um, up. Yeah, th- there's nothing else to say. It's, it's just crap. So. <laughs> <laughs> just seem a bit, a bit angry with it. Right, I'll quickly blast out a number two. Uh, my number two is Hot Tub Time Machine. It's a, a comedy film that I'm surprised actually how much I enjoy the original because it is a really like low bar style of comedy film. But I think the people involved, and I mean, that's the big, that's the big issue really, isn't it? The sequel loses Cusack, really. Cusack, like that's it, isn't it? I actually don't yeah. think, yeah. I, I never considered it in my list. I, I have seen the sequel weirdly and I, it's nowhere near as good. I still don't think it's awful. Like I think it's fine. Yeah, I think that might be fair. Like it's not entirely atrocious. I think this one really got onto my list because of I surprised myself how much I think of Hot Tub Time Machine with great fondness. <laughs> yeah, I really, really enjoy that film, and I, I enjoy rewatching it. And uh, the sequel was just a just a big letdown. I've I see no reason to go back to the sequel, but the uh, the original has some rewatchability. Uh, okay, uh, Andy, I think it's your number one. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a stretch. I mean, it is definitely bad, but I barely remember it. I just remember it being awful. Uh, Crocodile Dundee. The first film's superb. The second film, I think, is better than most people seem to think. And Completely agree. I remember watching Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles again on TV. And I'm not 100% sure that I even watched all of it. I just remember. It's, it, I just it's remember, incredibly poor. Yeah, I just remember. It just stood out to me as being, yeah, incredibly poor. It's right. It's just, it, not just does it do that thing where it follows, like, tropes of the first couple and and just retreads them and does nothing new. Like, it goes beyond that, and that's why it gets to number one, in that it, like, genuinely seems to, like, change the character. There is a story to it, and I don't know if it's just hyperbole, but from what I've read, they were contractually obliged to make a third film that nobody involved really wanted to make other than the studio. So they sort of actively set out to make the worst Crocodile Dundee film they could make that was still kind of publishable, that would still you know be released, but was just sort of minimum effort. 
And I like to think that's true because I, I really like the first, both first two Crocodile Dundee films, another childhood favourite of mine. Um, and the third one is actively bad, but I prefer to believe it's bad because they meant it to be bad. The thing is, it's it's entirely built on its main character. Like, Paul Hogan is, like, he's incredibly, like, folksy, isn't he? Like, it's not that he's an idiot. It's just that he, yeah, he's very hard to, like, rile and, yeah, very, like, low-key about stuff. Just a kind of chilled-out guy who's used to a kind of outback living, mm-hmm. thrown into a sort of different environment and that's where all the kind of comedy comes from it and it's also super heartwarming and yeah the third one is about an art heist yeah from what I remember like he he just responds to situations in ways that just the character wouldn't respond to like he's sort of antagonistic in certain situations and it just doesn't make any sense yeah it's not where the charm comes from at all yeah you've just spent you've spent two films building this character and then you've kind of taken the shell of the character and being like right it's fine we're just gonna make a different film and we're gonna put him in a different world and suddenly he's a fucking idiot i say it's so long since i've seen it and let's be honest i'm not gonna see it again but uh but yeah i just remember it being not just awful as a standalone film but also a film that really destroys the like backstory of the character. Good choice. Hence why it's number one. Now, unfortunately, the bubble's a bit burst, Marco. So unless you're swapping something in, we know you're number one. Yeah, no, I, I, that, that remains number one. But I will just say about Die Hard, which equally could be. It's interesting because the third Die Hard film is also was not written as a diehard film. So it followed the exact same thing and proved that actually, if it's done well, it absolutely can work, just inserting a character that if you actually write the character correctly. Um, yeah, I can I can believe that, because I think, like... I mean, the second film is kind of the same film as the first film, just not yeah, quite as absolutely. well. And the third film, I really toss up as which is my favourite between the first and the third. Same. Because the Same. first is probably a better film, but Samuel L. Jackson just lifts the third film so much. But yeah, he he does. The, the important bit of it is that although it's a completely different action film from the first, the character is the same. Like it, it makes sense the way that that he would respond to those sort of situations, and so it still holds together as a diehard film. <clears throat> yeah, which is which is why Die Hard Four. Um, and five are so unforgivable, and I think blame can be put at Bruce Willis's door for sure because you know have some bloody pride in your character that you've created. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't it doesn't even try to like you know play it like he used to, and that's not just down to the writing. I mean, I'm pretty sure Bruce Willis turned around and said, "Guys, I'm not going to do this actually. So if you want me to be in the film, rewrite it." But he didn't. He just took the check, and that's basically what he's done for the last 15 years with about two exceptions. I mean, it's dawned on me as we've gone through these that, of course, the reason they're bad sequels are almost all exclusively for the same (laughs) set of reasons. Either it's a cash grab or it has just entirely missed the point of its original or there's a specific character or or actor who failed to reappear. I think the the cash grab is the 
thing is the main that, thrust that carries yeah. all of it that they think yeah. like an audience will go and see it because of who it is and the character and so well, the quality of the film is irrelevant that that's why i think in indiana jones it is number one because it doesn't have those excuses i mean sure they were trying to make money obviously every film ultimately is but they had all the components in place to make a good film like all the creative people involved were previously involved i don't think they would have made it unless they were trying to make a good film and it's just it's just really bad and that makes it all the more depressing so finally, my my number one, um, I'm, I'm slightly surprised it didn't come up because I thought this was uh, an obvious choice uh, that I might have to consider swapping out, but it's Jurassic Park. It won't require much discussion, I don't think. But I think the the first film is, of course, absolutely stellar. Um, it's thoroughly rewatchable. I think still stands up today visually. And I think every sequel thereon has been not even a, a slice of how brilliant the original Jurassic Park was. I think I have seen all of the sequels as well for that one. Yeah. I mean, I agree that the first is head and shoulders above. Uh, I don't think any of the sequels are truly, like, disastrously bad, though. They're just kind of pretty average. I didn't like the very most recent one, Jurassic World 2. Yeah. I've always seen Jurassic World, and, yeah, it's, it's... like it pales into comparison for the first one, but um, I, I thought it was definitely okay. think it was bad. Like it's yeah, no, a I perfectly it... watchable modern yeah, blockbuster, it's a very watchable adventure. <laughs> adventure That's it. I, I thought the first one was okay. The second one, I, but Jurassic Park three, I think it is. It's um, not great, is it? No, that one's real. That one's real bad. But okay. I just, yeah, I mean, much like the others on the list, and uh, I'll fly through some some honourable mentions that cover very similar ground. But there's quite a few of those where the sort of 80s blockbusters that were really high quality 80s blockbusters were then sequeled a lot and often with very poor returns. So I'll I'll try and fly through these because I don't think we've got much more on the list. Uh, But I have Robocop. There's another one, Mm -hmm. again, like Jurassic Park. I think the first film's really good. Terminator and Terminator 2. Yeah. I'm... My preference would be Terminator Two as my favourite of the films, but uh, again, but following on from that, they're all they're all they're all bad. The Matrix again, you mentioned Speed, Scream. I mean, Jaws has about three sequels. Yep, and they're really bad. But yeah, I mean, my favourite was Titanic Two. Unfortunately, you stole that one early doors, but just the very premise of it, I think, <laughs> is. Uh... <laughs> Did you read the 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 like the the bio as well so it's set a hundred years later on a new titanic i only had one honorable which is uh zoolander 2 which i cut out of the list because i was just going to say the same things about anchorman yeah I, I, to be yeah, honest just, i prefer anchorman than zoolander as a as a film yeah maybe uh, oh right as a first film yeah i'm not not a massive zoolander fan maybe against the no, oh, I quite like the first one, but again, I don't know how well it would actually hold up if I watched it now. But the second one just does the same thing as Anchorman, where it just has, like, it's just trying to cram as many, like, cameo credits in as it possibly can and kind of does the same jokes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was too similar. So cut it. 
All right, is that, that all I, for the I, list? Yeah, no, that is, yeah. Well, that is all from us at the Screen and Needle podcast. Join us again next week where we'll talk about another film, another album, and another top five list. Namely, this is Mark's Choice, no? Yeah, I believe it is, yeah. Superb. So, I'm going to go for a film that I've never seen, uh, which is Night Moves, 1975, Arthur Penn film starring Gene Hackman. And uh, the album, the new Mother Mother album, Inside. I anticipate having lots to say about that. So I'm not doing a top five. I'm just going to do what I mentioned a couple of weeks back. I'm just going to do a rundown of scores basically all right i just thought it would be kind of fun i'll try i'll try and do some kind of spreadsheet and work out how like you know how many tens everyone's given how many like ones whatever that kind of thing nice cool we can find out finally that as we always as we already know i am blatantly the most negative but maybe not who knows miss your negative well i will sign off with an homage to anchorman and say, stay classy, the internet. Bye.